Hello and welcome to Afternoonified. The podcast that I'm turning into my own cooking show because the Food Network won't return my calls. I'm Emily. And I'm Sarah. Um, Emily, do you even have the Food Network's phone number? I mean, I've been trying to DM Alton Brown for the last year and a half, so we'll see. Nice. I love the ad lib. Uh, He did reply to one of my tweets the other week. Oh. Um, Yes, I nearly shit myself. I bet. Uh, I made his uh, oatmeal recipe that has uh, quinoa in it. And I don't usually like quinoa, but in this uh, application, it added just a really nice, like, kind of chewy hardiness to it. Yeah, it was like like a nutty kind of flavor. Yeah, it was really nice. Interesting. I've been making oatmeal on the weekends, and it's been very nice. I add some slivered almonds that I toasted and some cranberries and more brown sugar than is healthy. But Well, of course. I have a recipe uh, in this cookbook I got for Christmas for uh, savory oatmeal. It has sriracha in it. Interesting. Yeah. Yeah. I'm a little on the fence about trying it. Um. That's definitely something I would want to try. I couldn't guarantee I would like it. Yeah. Like, I would want to try it in, like, a restaurant. I wouldn't want to have to, like, make a batch of it myself and, like, get all the things for it. Um, but, yeah, it's from the same cookbook where I got my fucking amazing uh, chocolate f- – or not chocolate frosting, peanut butter frosting recipe and the uh, apple cheddar turnovers that I made a couple weeks ago, which, holy shit – Weirdly, this is all on topic. Yeah. We we actually aren't on a tangent. We're on a tangent. but We're on uh, a tangent, but it's a closer tangent. It's a related tangent. So uh, we are going to talk about <clears throat> the science of baking, sort of. Well, it is going to be the science of baking. It's not going to be completely comprehensive because that is dry. And that's also why the show Good Eats exists. So go watch Elton Brown. Good night. Basically, um, there's like 10 episodes available on the cooking show or the cooking network website for free. This show might make you a better baker. Uh, at the very least, you'll know what's happening when you put salt in your sourdough. It's it's very kind of you to think I'm capable of sourdough. Everyone's capable of sourdough. If, if this quarantine has taught us anything, Sarah. <laughs> it's that literally anybody can. <laughs> Any fucking idiot can make sourdough. And at the end of this episode, I'm going to uh, quiz Sarah, but also oh, do it in the context of, of giving you guys the recipe for my jalapeno cheddar bread. You have that to look forward to. <laughs> so my sources um, are an article called A Brief History of Baking and the Pastry Arts from gatocakes.com. Very French. Uh, G-A-T-O, so cat cakes, basically. Oh. N- right. Is, yeah. Are they playing on gateau? Yes, I think so. Okay. The book, I'm Just Here for More Food by Alton Brown, which is the most comprehensive, like, easy-to-follow book about baking that I could ever recommend. It's amazing. Uh, and then my own fucking brain. Huh. Yeah. <laughs> turns out. First-hand expertise. Well, yeah, it turns out that when you take baking classes as a 10-year-old, you retain some of the shit and carry it through (laughs) your life. Not even kidding, when I was in fourth grade, my grandma signed me up for a homemade ravioli class. (laughs) This is on brand for you. I also attended uh, Alice in Wonderland-themed tea parties where we learned about manners and also how tea is supposed to be served. Wow. This explains a lot about who you are as a person. Yeah, yeah. my grandma would also tape episodes of the Magic School Bus for me, but they would always have at least part of an episode of Martha Stewart living after it. <laughs> anyway, this should all make sense now. So we're going to start with the history of baking, because it doesn't make sense to just launch into what eggs do before you kind of explain why we started doing this, other than it being delicious. So if you guys remember... A specific episode where I talked about flatbread a lot. Uh, demons? Yes. Yes, the demons uh, episode with the segment about flatbreads. 
Um, no, in pizza, I did talk about how flatbreads are one of the oldest, you know, cooked, prepared foods <clears throat> that humans have. Because basically all you had to do was mix water and ground up wheat or whatever cereal grain that they had and cook it over fire. Mm-hmm. And you have bread. Easy enough. Yeah. It's filling. It has a lot of carbohydrates. So, you know, it kept them energized. And then sometimes you get wild yeasts and stuff in your flour and water mixture, which causes it to rise. Bread. Magic. Uh, So this is going to be a very short history. So Greeks invented enclosed wood-heated ovens around 500 or 600 BC. And it is thought that people had access to communal ovens to bake their breads unless you were wealthy enough to have one of your own, which kind of continued into... um, like up until uh, in Italy, like we were talking about with pizza, mm-hmm. where uh, a lot of people didn't have an oven in their home because they were expensive and considered more of a luxury item. Right. Uh, several centuries later, in ancient Rome, uh, they established mass production of breads and uh, the profession of baking. It was also during this time that bakers began to enrich formulas by adding fats and honey uh, to create sweetbreads or pastries. So before that, it was pretty much just flour, water, mm-hmm. and whatever. But the Romans... Well, yeah. Very yeah. basic sustenance. Yeah. And the Romans kind of turned it into an art form like they did with mm-hmm. a lot of stuff. Uh, the Romans ha- The Romans have a history of overcomplicating things. <laughs> with the spread of the Roman Empire across Europe, the knowledge of bread making also spread with it. Um, and then with its, you know, untimely downfall... Uh, bread making almost vanished for a long time. Really? Yes. It wasn't until the late Middle Ages that baking and pastry made a significant comeback. Damn. Yeah. You'd think something like as basic as bread would just kind of be around. I assume that bread was still being made, but not in the levels of like pastries and sweets. It wasn't. Okay. Yeah, fair enough. Yeah, it went yeah. back to being that sustenance as opposed to. Um, Let's try and actually make this taste good. Yeah, I am using my hands a lot to talk about this. I mean, have you, uh, you, you have, it's been a while. Let's see me record a podcast episode. It has been a while, but yes. Lots of handwork. I, <laughs> I feel like I'm giving a TED talk. <laughs> yeah, with the Middle Ages, we got kind of a resurgence in bread making and pastry, like patisserie. Although they didn't call it that. Uh, Until French bakers and pastry chefs began forming guilds around this time in order to protect and develop their art, which I feel like we've talked about this, too, with pizza, because there are a lot of uh, the Venn diagram between, like, shitty things people who made pizza did and (laughs) shitty things people who made pastries did. There's an overlap. They were able to control membership, prohibit anyone but certified members from producing breads to sell, and establish an apprenticeship program that would protect and ensure a way of passing down knowledge from one generation to another through education. That seems very intense for baking. Yeah, It's, I mean, it happens with a lot of stuff. Um, People get really snooty about it, especially the French. I'm sorry. The French act snooty? I know. I did uh, come across this god-awful article this week where a, I want to, I don't even think she was a professional baker, but her name was Karen. And fucking course it was Karen. Karen with a C. Even worse. Um, But she wrote this whole article about how people who were baking breads now were openly just taking the supplies and food out of her mouth because they were buying up all of the flour and the yeast and she needed it to make, I shit you not, her homemade breadcrumbs and croutons. For herself? For herself. She, I think she did use the phrase taking food out of her family's mouth so they could Instagram their bread. Like, people are Instagramming their bread and then just throwing it away. Not making some of the best, most rewarding fucking sandwiches of their lives. <laughs> anyway, so it hasn't... People still do it. Right. Glad I got that off my chest. It's been sitting with me for, like, the entire week. <laughs> just been mad about it. Um, so the profession grew and developed because of this gatekeeping. Um, but maybe not as much if they hadn't been, you know, doing that. Yeah, we'll never um, know. So as it developed, so did the formulas used to make the baked goods. 
Dried fruits and honey were added to breads and cake batters, uh, mostly with religious significance in mind and for specific celebrations. Unsweetened pastry dough was used for items such as savory pies. The savory pie was a big deal in the Middle Ages. Because it was basically... Yeah, it was basically like homemade Tupperware for your shit. Yeah. Oh, that's a good point. It's a little box made of bread dough. Yeah. Yeah, they would use a hot water crust pastry, which if you watch the Great British Bake Off at all, it's still something they do. Um, It's kind of a... I'm not going to say bland. It's definitely a less flavored... It's not supposed to be, like, the staple of It's not the, the star. Yeah. No. I like a good bland bread. <laughs> yeah, I like a nice white bread sometimes. Mm-hmm. So in France during the 1400s, pastry and baking began to separate into two distinct art forms. You can be a pastry chef. You can be a baker. You can make galettes. You can make bread. I was going to say, and it's the distinction, like, pastry is very much, like, dessert, dessert, whereas, like, baker is breads and galettes and... Yeah, I I want to say the patisserie is more like your fancy shit. Like, I mean, there's kind of a crossover with croissants, if you ask me. Right. But yeah, um, but like macarons, definitely pastries. Yeah, yeah, that kind of stuff. Like fancy, fancy desserts. But you can also do like a savory tart, and I think that's also considered a patisserie. But uh, okay. bake baking specifically, you're doing like breads and cakes and that kind of stuff. Gotcha. I want to say that pastry does have tend to have like that kind of like crispy, flaky, buttery pain mm-hmm. in the ass to make. Lots of phyllo dough and yeah, lots of lots of laminated doughs. <laughs> um, the change initiated a rapid development and attracted more artisans and caused them to develop new products. So as people got snootier about it, and this kind of broke up into two camps of pastry and baking. Uh, people started to get even more wild with it. 1400s were a good era for this. (laughs) In addition, the discovery of the Americas generated a revolutionary approach to pastry making. That was a direct quote from the article. What what about America revolutionized baking? Uh, Discovering America did. Uh, The discovery and availability of sugar and cocoa in the Uh. Americas... Ding, ding, ding. Uh-huh. Added to the complexity and further experimentation in developing new formulas and recipes. So, like, they had sugar before this. It just wasn't as readily available, right? I want to say that the sugar that was made, uh, that was used in, in the UK and stuff, was probably a beet sugar. Right. As opposed to sugar cane, which grows more in the South and Mexico mm-hmm. um, and South America, which... We'll get into how there's not really a difference, but there is a difference. Not specifically beet sugar versus sugar cane, but uh, molecularly speaking. Because this is a science episode. Oh, no. Oh, God. Am I going to have to learn something? I hope so. This is an educational podcast. (laughs) Education? I'm making air quotes. (laughs) So by the 1800s, many of the pastries we are familiar with today, including the laminated doughs I was talking about, egg and milk enriched doughs, and the such, uh, had been invented. Laminated dough is when you have like a normal yeast dough and then you put layers of butter in it and then do the folding that you see on baking shows uh, and roll yeah. it out. So you have layers of butter. In. It's amazing. I will never make it. <laughs> very, very fussy. And yeah. Yeah. And it was during the 19th century that the profession was elevated to a science as we know it today, or hopefully. Because, that you know, before that, it was just putting shit in a bowl and seeing what happens. But, like, baking is a science. It is different from cooking in that things, very specific things have to happen in order to get what you want. Right. Like, I always distinguish it like cooking, like, you can improv cooking a little bit. Like I, but I feel like with baking, like you really need to like actually pay attention to like the order you are doing things and the measurements. Like they're, they are what they are for very specific reasons. Cooking is jazz. Baking is the soundtrack to Star Wars. Yes, the score rather. Hi, Lucy. Yes, nineteenth century science. Uh, after the French Revolution, servants and servants and artisans were freed. <laughs> They started up individual businesses, allowing everyone to enjoy the edible treasures once reserved <laughs> simply for royalty. The let them eat cake thing? 
didn't happen, but yes. It didn't happen, but uh, it is a significant statement. Correct. Because they didn't have access to the cakes that she had. That's why they were mad about it, even though yes, it didn't happen. Ex- yeah. <laughs> Some of the patisseries open during this time also still serve Paris today. Oh. Yeah. Yeah, because basically, like, rich families had not enslaved, but hired the artisans and talented pastry chefs who were coming up with these new amazing things, thus making it so they couldn't have their own businesses. Oh, okay, yeah. And then in 1856, baking powder was introduced, and 12 years later, in 1868, commercial yeast was sold and made things a lot easier for everybody. Because up until... Yeah, because up until that point, if you wanted to leaven something, you had to make your own starter. And how would you go about that? Like, what is required? Okay. Uh, Yeah, because I don't really talk about this uh, so much in the the other section. So, uh, starter, which I have one right now. His name is Randy. I I think every millennial has one right now, honestly. Most people, yes. Most people. So, basically, a starter is you, you start with equal amounts uh, by weight of water and flour. Whole wheat flour, usually, but, you know, do what you want. Then you mix them together in a jar and just let them sit, like, on top of your fridge and feed it equal amounts of water and flour every day. Mix it up. And in about three days, it's going to start to smell weird. And those are actually wild yeasts and bacteria that have come and started to feed on the flour and water mixture and reproduce and basically call it, like, it's a live culture, like. Oh, interesting. Okay. Yeah, and different regions have different kinds of yeast. So a sourdough made in Portland is going to be different than a sourdough made in Minneapolis or a sourdough made in San Francisco, which is why San Francisco especially... Um, like the wharf area is best known for its sourdough, not mm. because of like any particular method that they're using, just because of the kinds of yeast that grow in that region. And yeast is a kind of bacteria. Yeah, yeah, okay. it's a it's a microbe. Oh, okay. See, I my only conception of yeast is like the thing you buy at the supermarket to add to things. Those are actually freeze dried. They're like little sea yeah. monkeys. So That's when you put them in crazy, I, I actually learned something. I didn't <laughs> quite understand how this worked. Yeah. So the yeast you buy in the store is actually freeze dried uh-huh. um, little pellets. And then when you put them in the warm water with the sugar before you make bread, you're actually rehydrating them and then giving them something to eat with the sugar. Oh, cool. Yeah. Um, and I think I talk about it a little bit later, but as long as we're on the subject, the way that yeast works is that these little microbes will <laughs> release gases. They as fart they, into your bread. They fart and they burp into your bread and they cause air bubbles, which causes it to rise. Cool. <laughs> that's not sarcastic. They came out really sarcastic, but it's not sarcastic. Like That's actually cool. So that's one of, you know, the your first big science facts. Yay, science. So uh, baking utilizes very carefully balanced formulas like we talked about. Um, what goes into a baked good either strengthens or toughens it, like proteins and starches, weakens or tenderizes it, fats and sugars, moistens it, any water-containing ingredient, um, dries, like egg whites and uh, other proteins, or leavens it. But not by themselves, because you have to apply heat. Yes. And you know, without heat and water, the important chemical and physical reactions don't happen. Right. Like, you can mix together some eggs and some flour and let it sit in the bowl, but it's not, it's not going to do, gonna anything. do anything. I mean, it's not going to do anything if you bake it either. I mean, actually, you might get, like, a custard, but a not a good custard. No, it's like something would happen to it, but I doubt it would taste very good. Yeah. Uh, and then there are also ingredients that just flavor it. Right. Um, like extracts and, and whatnot. And salt to a certain degree. We'll talk about why salt is important a little bit later. So, here. Science. uh, Science. We're going to get into the actual science of baking. Um, And I will preface this by saying I have not gone to school for this. I made a horrible mistake and went to school for film instead. Like I said, I've been doing this for a really long time. You don't need to go to school for baking to understand baking. No. um, 
There have been a great baking. many television shows that have taught us this. Actually, and I, I don't even know if they really get into the science a ton uh, in, you know, culinary schools. I used to have a roommate who was a culinary student, but the most I kind of engaged with her baking class was when she brought home ham and cheese croissants one day. Really, that's the only important thing to worry about. Yeah. So we're going to start by being very dry about this. Is there a lot of flour involved? Yeah. Baked goods are comprised of proteins, carbohydrates, slash starches, fats, water, and air. And together they form the culinary megazord that gives us everything from focaccia to cheesecakes. Thank God. <laughs> Just sitting next to Travis this weekend and I wrote the words culinary megazord. Like, and then laughed and laughed. It's like, this is gonna, this is gonna do it for about eight people. <laughs> There is a very specific crossover. It reminded me of that episode of My Favorite Murder where Stephen had to explain Power Rangers. Oh my god, that was the best episode of My Favorite Murder ever. So this is for you, Stephen, who probably doesn't listen to this podcast. <laughs> okay, so proteins. We're going to start with proteins. They're very important to, to just life in general, not even just baking. Proteins are the powerhouse of the baking? Yes, they are the mitochondria of the bread. Uh, so proteins are essentially little springs made from amino acids. Um, in their raw, untouched state, they're like little balls of twisted and tangled, like, atomic bits held together by molecular bonds. This okay, may be a very continue. visual thing. So if you picture um, a slinky, that, oh, done. that uh, okay, the slinky is the protein. Uh, but when it's not touched, it's like a slinky that's been zip-tied to itself. Okay. So, like, on one end, it's, like, zip-tied, so it kind of, like, comes back around on itself? No, like it's it's kind of, like, zip-tied in, in random spots. So it is tangled the fuck up. But it is So a it's a slinky I have broken. Yes, it's a broken slinky. So when you add something, and I think I... If anyone watched the Instagram story where I made cheese, I think I did talk about this a little bit. Um, so when you add something acidic, salt, heat, or even just agitate the proteins, like, you know, shaking or whipping, some of these bonds, the zip ties, are broken and the whole thing just kind of unfurls. Into a slinky. Into a slinky. Okay. Got it. Uh, if it's been heated or agitated the molecular bonds will begin to adhere to the bonds on other proteins. Okay. Which is called coagulation. Gross. <laughs> that is what blood does. It is what blood do. That's what blood do. Yeah. Uh, they have some chemical help from your insides. Coagulants. Uh, so this coagulation and formation of bonded protein networks are what give baked goods structure and strength to hold in the air bubbles and make it rise. Like it forms okay. a web. So when you mix some stuff together, yeah, it, it does the thing. Yeah, protein specifically. Um, so an example of coagulation in the kitchen um, is scrambled eggs. Oh, yeah. Which are mostly protein uh, with some fat from the yolk and, and some water. Because everything has water in it, except for oils, but we'll talk about that. So when you heat them up, they start to solidify. And that's the, that's the coagulation. That's the proteins coming together. And the types of proteins involved can determine what the end game coagulation looks like. Because there are different kinds of proteins. You know, there's like the proteins in eggs, but then there's also the proteins uh, in, in milk that give you cheese. Mm-hmm. Which is what we what I, I did when I, I made cheese. I put uh, acid into warm milk and it started to coagulate the proteins and separate them from the water that the protein was suspended in. Right. I do remember this. Cool. So yeah, if you do this, you might get scrambled eggs, you might get a cheese, or you might get the kind of protein that results in gluten. Because flour does have protein in it. I love gluten. Yeah. Gluten is a protein. Huh. So um, gluten is, like I said, a stretchy, pliable web that holds in the bubbles in your baked good. So with the exception of uh, custards and egg foams, which we are going to talk about the, towards the end of the episode, most baked goods rely on 
gluten formation mm-hmm. or some variation of that. Because, you know, gluten-free recipes do work. They don't have I, – I honestly could not tell you how gluten-free bread works sometimes. Um Magic. Different, yeah, Wizardry. different kinds of proteins form different kinds of webs. But for the most part, we are looking for wheat flour-based glutens. So that's that's proteins for now. So now we're going to move on to carbohydrates. I also love them. <laughs> so they are thickeners and tenderizers. So this includes sugar, maple syrups, honey, uh, milk, Um, All of those if you're looking for simple carbohydrates. And then you get more complex carbohydrates in wheat and other cereals. And the simple versus complex is basically just how the chains of molecules are arranged. Okay. It's it's more than I'm going to get into right now. Just know that they are different. And your body absorbs the simple ones like sugar and and milk uh, sugars and stuff uh, faster. Okay. than the complex ones. But they both do the same thing. And for the most part, uh, most carbohydrates are made up of the same bits, but the way that they're arranged determines how they taste. Interesting. Okay. So yes, sugar and flour are both carbohydrates. We know this. Um, however, they have very, very different purposes. Yes. I don't think I would ever substitute one for the other. <laughs> So the flour does the thing with the gluten that I just told you about. Right. Uh, but it also adds mass and it absorbs mm-hmm. water given up by the proteins coagulating. Because like we said, when the proteins coagulate, if they're suspended in a water, like with eggs or milk, the water has to go somewhere. Uh-huh. And that water goes into uh, okay. your flour, your, yeah. your starch. So it's kind of like a little sponge. Um, But it also gives the yeast something to eat, like we discussed Mm -hmm. when we were talking about making a sourdough starter. So, yeah, it it absorbs the water. And then when you heat it, it – I'm trying to figure out how to, like, visually explain this. So the starch is – it will absorb a lot of water. And then when you heat it, it weakens the outside coating of the starch molecule. Mm -hmm. So finally – when it gets warm enough and it takes in enough water or liquid, it explodes and just sends like bits of starch everywhere, which thickens and gelatinizes. Gruesome. Continue. <laughs> uh, so this gelatinization is what gives it shape, which is why you have to let bread cool after you bake it. It gives the chance for the the gelatins and the starches to solidify and cause mm-hmm. like a like a structure. Right. So, I mean, if you imagine like a actual gelatin, like a bowl of Jello, mm-hmm. when it's warm, it's still like really liquid. Yeah. And it hasn't had time for all the starches and stuff to like creep out and take on more water and form a gel. Right. And it's Once only it's, when you've like cooled in the fridge for a couple hours that yeah. it solidifies. Yeah, it solidifies and it forms a pretty well solid to a certain extent. Yeah. Solid compared to like milk. Yeah, and then also how strong your gluten networks are also determine, like, how intense that structure is going to be. So that's, like, how you get the difference between a nice soft cupcake and, like, a French bread. Right. It's just how much. I was just going to say, there's a big, like, cakes and French bread. Yeah, they're they're very different textures, but it's kind of the same ingredients for the most part. Like, the same base, flour, sugar, eggs. Well, I mean, French bread is actually just flour- uh, water, so there's probably no salt sugar in French yeast. bread, but yeah. Uh, it, sometimes there is for taste, but um, sugar actually does play a large role in tenderizing. So making that soft cookie or mm-hmm. cake versus the French bread. Um, it absorbs water. Uh, it has a property known as being hydros- uh, hygroscopic, which means it absorbs water very easily. Gotcha. Sugar fucking loves water. <laughs> Sugar will go to the beach any day of the week. <laughs> Salt also is uh, hygroscopic. Uh, okay, so sugar absorbs water that proteins might need to form their gluten webs, um, which, like I said, make things chewy. Uh, the same property is what also makes sugar a great preservative because it keeps water away from the microorganisms that can fuck with your food. Mm-hmm. So basically, sugar, other than giving it sweetness and all of that, it's one of its main things is taking 
water away from the proteins so they don't form too much of a, a chewy web. Okay. So it tenderizes. Um, it also helps leaven in some mm. methods by punching little holes in fats like butter, which form good like seed bubbles in your mixture for air to expand inside and cause the structure to rise. It also leavens, again, by keeping water from starches so that the structures can expand more before they explode and gelatinize. <laughs> gotcha. This is great audio, is it not, everybody? <laughs> um, sugars also brown, which give flavor. Caramelization is a big one. Oh, right. Um, yeah. Ha- have I told you about my favorite pastry? No. It is from a place in Portland called Grand Central, and it is called a monkey muffin. Oh, no. And it is a, like a laminated croissant dough in a muffin cup oh, that no. has been doused in caramel, like sugar, like caramel syrup, and mixed with caramelized pecans. That's too much. And it, it bakes up and it hardens, and so you have this crunchy, flaky, buttery, caramelized with nuts. Oh, fuck. <laughs> I almost just said I was getting food horny, but that's just hungry. Listen, Emily, we're all food horny. <laughs> <laughs> oh, oh, my I God. I gotta write that down to use it in the promo. <laughs> there was a... Uh, so, yeah, sugar caramelizes, but it also uh, browns via the Maillard reaction, which is a big deal in the culinary world. <laughs> Uh, So the Maillard reaction creates brown pigments in cooked meats uh, in a very specific way, because meats is usually where this comes up. Okay. Um, It rearranges amino acids and certain simple sugars, which then arrange themselves into rings and collection of rings that reflect light in a way as to give the meat a brown color. Sure. The important thing about the Maillard reaction isn't so much the color, it's the flavors and aromas. Okay. The molecules it produces provide, like, they... These new molecules that are being formed by the rearranging due to the heat being applied to the sugars and the proteins on the the meat or whatever you're working with, Mm -hmm. they also, like, are responsible for the smells of, like, roasting and baking and frying. The good stuff. Yeah. By rearranging the amino acids, they're also creating a new flavor to that amino acid. Okay. Anyway, that's the Maillard reaction. That's why sugars are important. It's not just about caramelization. And the Maillard reaction can also uh, happen at a lower temperature than caramelization, which is better for baking sometimes. It's how you get that nice brown crust on your bread or when a cookie says to bake until golden brown. My favorite. Yes. Anyway, we're going to talk about fats now. Fats are not bad. No. Fats Carbs are great. Carbs are not bad. No, so this is bad. Yeah. Just whatever you the- want. Yeah, basically. Don't go nuts about it, but go for it. Yeah. Fats are good. It's what makes your hair shiny. (laughs) So in short, fats tenderize by lubricating everything, uh, by basically putting little rain jackets on the starches and proteins to keep them from absorbing water. Is this your own metaphor? Did you borrow it from somebody? Uh, It's like three quarters me, one quarter, I want to say, Alton Brown when he was making risotto. Gotcha. Um, talking about rice molecules being in little raincoats. It's the same idea. Because <laughs> fat repels water. Uh-huh. Because it's a lighter viscosity, and that's a different show. Not really. I can't do an entire show about why fat is different than water. <laughs> you know how if you pour water and oil into the same container, it doesn't mix that? Yeah, it's because oil is lighter than yes. water. It is less dense. So, yeah, it it lubricates and puts little raincoats and keeps the starches and proteins from absorbing water or giving off water in the case of proteins and just kind of keeps them from doing their thing a little bit. And this concept actually plays a lot into, like, making biscuits, which we'll get into. Like my cat does or like the food? Like the food. Uh, So oils, butter, shortening, lard, uh, the cocoa butter in chocolate and cocoa powder. All the good stuff. Yeah, these are all fats that bring flavor and texture and lubrication. I'm going to say lubricate one more time. (laughs) It's food lube. (laughs) Oh, God. For when you're food horny. (laughs) (laughs) Lard is just food lube. (laughs) Jason Biggs and American Pie. That was food horny. (laughs) 
There is a reference the kids of today will understand. I hope the kids of today aren't listening to this podcast. (laughs) Our demographic is like 22 to 45. (laughs) And occasionally Travis's mom and grandma, which was horrifying. Oh, no. No. I don't need to know this. Travis's mom, if you are listening, please turn it off. So for an example, oils aren't technically wet because they're not water. Right. However, a liquid fat like vegetable oil feels wet. And that's what counts when you want things moist. Oh, no. And since oils don't... Just don't say it. Since oils don't evaporate and aren't absorbed by other things, they keep that dampness. No, that's worse. <laughs> Let's just get past this section real quickly. <laughs> I get what you're saying, though. So, like, you could add a lot of water to something, but it's, A, just going to make it kind of soggy. Um, it's gonna like, it, it soggy. isn't going to accomplish the same thing, because water can be absorbed by the other ingredients. Oil can't as much, so... Yeah, it's it's kind of like Alton Brown said, oil isn't wet, but it plays wet in the mouth. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> I think he, he used the M word instead because it was a, you know, cooking show. But uh, so fat's also brown uh, via the my reaction. Butter in particular. Butter is amazing for flavor. I, Don't let anyone tell you differently. No. Like, <laughs> this is what I've been told and what I believe is like the real trick to like getting your food to taste like restaurant food is just add butter. Butter. Butter and butter. season it. That's yeah. it. I mean, people be like, oh. I have this horrible habit of looking at the comments on like BuzzFeed cooking videos. It, don't do it. Just never fucking do it. There's always someone who's like, well, that looks like too much work. Or like, well, they use too much salt. It's like, no, they use the appropriate amount of salt. Yeah, you're wrong. Someone got up their ass because they put like a quarter cup of salt in some pasta water. Like, it's you're not eating it. It's flavoring it. Yeah. The water enters the pasta. Is that how much salt you're supposed to put in when they tell you to flavor or salt the water? Salty like the ocean is generally... Interesting. Okay. Yeah. It's the I kind of just like, I have one of those little grinders and I do a couple grinds into the pot. I usually do about two tablespoons for like a medium-sized pot. Um, It's the only chance you have to flavor the pasta Mm -hmm. because it's rehydrating. Yeah. Which is why, uh, not to toot my own horn, but my uh, French onion pasta recipe, you cook it in chicken broth and caramelized onions. Oh, damn. So, yeah. Uh, fat's brown. Uh, they heat quickly. They don't boil. Uh, and they So they transfer heat to the rest of the structure and help it set up. Cool. And so the faster it sets up, the less water it can... Are you following? Like, the no, less water like- that... Yeah, the less water that the starches and the flour gets in, the more tender it's going to be. Gotcha. Which is also why you'll find different methods of making chocolate chip cookies to kind of achieve, like, if you want a crisp cookie, if you want a soft one, if you want one that's cakey. Mm -hmm. It's all about the amounts of stuff you put in because they all play a different part. Also, cake-like brownies are bullshit, but also the fudgy ones that are just like a solid piece, not good either. Disagree, but... I mean, I agree that cake brownies are garbage, but like, oh God, the denser brownie is, the better. I uh, have started making my brownies in a mini muffin tin. Oh. And under baking them by about five minutes. Smart. Mm-hmm. So you get everything in there. You can even do it with a boxed brownie mix in case anyone needed that information. Those are, you know, the stuff that you have to actively like go out and get. But then we have water. Which is in everything except for pure oils. So water hydrates, it helps form gluten, it helps starches gelatinize and set up, it dissolves sugars and salts and provides a home for the yeasts. I would say it kind of like almost, not activates, but I guess that is exactly the word I was looking for. Like, Because I think of like you mix all these dry ingredients together, but they can't do anything until you add... Start hydrating them. Um, and it also creates steam that helps with leavening, and it helps carry heat throughout the mixture. So that's how you get an even thing. Is you know, if you have a really dry batter, it's not gonna it's not gonna heat evenly. Mm-hmm. Uh, so that being said, you don't always have to add water as an ingredient because milk, butter, eggs, they, they have all have water in them. Yeah. yeah, 
So you don't always have to add water. Like, sometimes you'll add milk. Sometimes you'll add eggs, and they have plenty of water in them. I was going to say, I very rarely have made a recipe where, like, I'd add straight water. Yeah. You always have to add liquid ingredients, but... Yeah. Yeah. Um, Water comes up mostly when you're making very basic bread recipes. Right. And even then, I prefer a milk and egg bread dough because they're richer, like a challah. Water does a lot of stuff and requires very little explanation as to what it is. Water, if you go into your bathroom and you turn on the faucet, it's what comes out. Water makes up a lot of most things, including you. (gasps) (laughs) That was my magic school bus moment. (laughs) So now we're going to talk about air. This is going to be a long episode. Holy shit. I'm so sorry. Air. Air. What's that? Air is what gives sourdough <laughs> big... God damn it. Uh, air is what gives sourdough big holes and keeps cakes fluffy. It heats up and expands and causes things to rise. Because in a lot of cases, it's actually the gases expanding, but they are technically... Right. It's like the chemical reactions producing the gases, which then expand within the whatever you're baking. And Yeah. Be it from the chemical reaction between baking soda and like an acidic ingredient, because baking soda is a um, it's a chemical. Mm-hmm. It's a naturally occurring chemical. And, you know, when you combine it, it creates gas. Do you get. OK, I was going to say, do you get into what baking soda does? That's what it does. Yeah, yeah. Uh, When you combine it with something acidic, it creates a chemical reaction that produces gas. And baking powder is actually, um, it's it's baking soda that has cream of tartar uh, in it as a stabilizer. Okay. Run that by me again. Baking powder versus baking soda. Uh, Which one has cream of tartar? Baking powder. Okay. Baking powder is just baking soda and cream of tartar. Okay. The cream of tartar, I believe, is slightly acidic. Right. Um, so it so kind of comes built in. A little bit, yeah. Okay. Um, which is why baking powder comes up a little bit more than baking soda. Because gotcha. you have to have something specifically acidic to get baking soda to do its thing. Okay. Gases can also be produced by yeast doing their their dirty business. <laughs> yeast fart in your food. I don't know how else to... <laughs> And so we also have things like flavorants, like extracts, which do pretty much just flavor it. And there's Vanilla, also s- mint, and... Yeah. And there's also salt, which flavors, but also uh, attracts water, and it dries out yeast and keeps it from going buck wild. Okay, so you put yeast to get it to rise, and then you add salt to... To kill it. Kill it down just a little bit. Okay. Yeah. Uh, well, it, it's actually not even... So one of my favorite... Because I saw Alton Brown live a couple of years ago. <laughs> Again, surprising to no one. But he told a story about how he was baking a batch of French bread for a bakery that he worked at, and he forgot to add salt. So it tasted awful. Because if you don't add salt to bread, pretty much anything, it kind of just tastes dead. Say, salt kind of brings out the flavors of everything. Salt has very specific chemical properties that that is another show i'll do a mini on salt you know it tasted bad it was like all right so i just tossed it in the dumpster out back but i believe he lived in georgia where it was warm oh no and he had a bunch of yeasty dough with nothing to stop it oh no (laughs) so it expanded it baked inside the like the dumpster and that's why you always need to remember to add salt (laughs) Because the yeast will go buck wild during the process. Was there just like a giant hunk of bread in the dumpster? Yeah. Yeah. He said it looked like a giant one-cheeked butt. (laughs) So yeah, salt does play a very big part, even if it didn't get its own specific section. So those are the parts. So you have the parts, but how you put them together and in what quantities does matter, clearly. Mm. Right. Um, Because, I mean... Almost all baked goods are made out of, you know, the same basic things. Yeah, it's just different combinations of them to achieve different yeah, and results. So the, how you mix them together is pretty much the difference between like a big fluffy cupcake and a crisp cookie. And you might get into this. I was always taught by my mother who baked a lot. Um, you always like combine all the dry ingredients and then you mix in the liquid ingredients. Does that make a difference? It does. And we're actually going to talk about uh, where that comes into play. I've basically spent most of this quarantine uh, mastering the muffin method. 
And so approximately 65 to 80% of all the baked goods you have made or will ever make use the muffin method. You mix the wet ingredients, usually with a liquid fat, and you take those wet ingredients and add them to the mixed dry ingredients like you were Mm -hmm. describing. Okay, yeah. And then you mix them until they are just combined. So the result is a very lovely, tender situation with kind of a rough texture Mm -hmm. since the leavening, usually baking soda or powder, they get to pretty much go wherever they want to go like and create uneven bubbles. Um, and the barely mixing it also stops too much gluten from forming. Right. So they're they're tender. This is how you make muffins. This is how quick breads are made. A lot of stuff. Carrot cake is a muffin. I don't know if you knew this. Oh, yeah. So that's the first method. That's the one that people use most of the time. And then there's the biscuit or pie dough method. So butter or lard or shortening. I'm a proponent of butter because shortening is gross and lard is... It's lard. It's just... Once you buy lard to make biscuits, then you just fucking have lard. (laughs) And you have to open your cupboards and see the lard you have in your cupboard. Basically, the method is you cut the the fat, the solid fat, into your dry goods. Yes. You have uh, chunks of flour that have been, not chunks, but your your flour has been given its little rain jacket. Some, but not (laughs) all of it. And you also have little bits of butter that's still in there. And then you add in some cream or some milk or buttermilk and then barely mix it. And this leaves you with a buttery, flaky kind of like biscuit or a scone or shortbread or pie crust if you leave out the chemical leavening. Right. And like with pie crust, does it have to be like cold butter? Yes. Um, And the purpose for that is that it keeps the butter solid if it's cold. So you have like little layers or pockets of butter that's going to melt right. and just make it super tender. Yes. God, this is making me hungry. So yeah, if you keep the handling to a minimum, uh, you don't form too much gluten. And if you use cold, solid fats, uh, it forms sheets of butter when you roll it out that will melt away when it bakes. And like we said, it's fucking delicious. Yep. Then there's the creaming method. Like cupcakes and cookies. These all use the creaming method. For the most part. Um, So you take a solid fat that's at room temperature. So it's, this is very important that it's at room temp because it has to be kind of pliable, but not liquid. Right. Because you're going to put that in with your sugar and beat it to form little holes in the butter that the, the sugar create. So when you mix this with your eggs and your dry ingredients, you have these little seed bubbles and those are going to rise in the oven thanks to chemical leavening producing gases. And they're going to be very even, and you're going to have a very even texture. And you're also not supposed to work it too hard to prevent gluten from forming. Weirdly, preventing gluten from forming is a very big part in making a lot of uh, baked goods. Right. You don't want to, like, overbeat something because You'll form then too it much just gluten. gets tough. and che- Yeah, tough yeah. and chewy. Which is, you, sometimes you want that, but you don't want that with a cupcake. No. So that's the whole point of the creaming method is you just have to start making the little bubbles with your your granulated sugar in pliable, soft butter or shortening. Yeah. So now that I'm thinking of it, the creaming method is what I was taught. So creaming the butter and the sugar. Then you add the eggs, the vanilla. I'm thinking specifically cookies now. Yeah. Yeah. And then you gradually add the flour. Yeah. The, the flour and, again, chemical leavening is used in this. Yeah. Yeah, that's it's pretty commonplace for for cookies and stuff. Um, brownies, I think, are more muffin method and mm-hmm. muffins and and then you have the straight dough method, which is it's bread, bread all so, the way down. Yeah, so all of the ingredients, including your natural leavening, so yeast or sourdough starter, which is still yeast, uh, are mixed up to form a dough that is kneaded until all of that good gluten forms. You do want gluten depending on what kind of bread you're making. Mm-hmm. But here, because you want a good strong gluten, but you can also add eggs or butter to tenderize it. Okay. So like challah is going to be a softer bread than a baguette. Mm-hmm. Um, and then you let it sit and rise. And then you redistribute the bubbles that the yeast farts have made. <laughs> and then you let it rise again. And then you put it in the oven to gelatinize and form you know, those structures and kill off the yeast so they stop farting. 
<laughs> I am not great at bread making. I prefer quick breads, which is use, you know, muffin method chemical. Like oven. banana bread and Yeah. Banana bread, bread is also and, a muffin. Yeah. Big, yeah, basically muffins in like bread form. Yeah. Pretty much. It's still bready, but you're using chemical leavening and there's less kneading because it's not supposed to be chewy. That being said, I did make a pretty dope sourdough loaf a little while ago. Just got to practice. Yeah. So those are the main methods. There's also the egg foam method where most of the work is done by whipped egg whites that form a matrix of tiny bubbles that bake into nice things like meringues and macarons and souffles. They are fussy. Complicated things. Yeah. They're not... Com- I mean, they're they're complicated just in that they can be fussy. Yeah. It's it's like, fine. It's more like you got to do it for like the right amount of time in the right way. Yeah. You're not relying on gluten to form the structure. You're relying on the, uh, the egg kind of coagulating and forming your souffle. Yeah. And like the air is – it's much harder to keep air in it. I, macarons are delicious but they're a pain in the ass yeah i like buying them i would never try making them <laughs> i've made them a couple times um ah. there's also the custard method which is again all about eggs um, because eggs, eggs and their proteins <laughs> are very good at forming gels but in this case you're coagulating the egg proteins to make a smooth gel like a cheesecake or a creme brulee right and as of this recording but not as of when I was making these notes. I was making a jalapeno popper cheesecake for the penis gallery's birthday. How did it turn out? It was good. It was good. Um, what? How, how did you achieve the jalapeno popper effect? So cheesecake is mostly eggs and cream cheese. Mm. So I took a, a normal cheesecake recipe. I also made it in the Instant Pot because steaming it is a lot better than just straight heating it. It's gentler. Uh, keeps it from drying out because uh, when the proteins coagulate, they release water, but you don't want them to release too much water. Uh-huh. So I cut the sugar a little bit. I added chopped up jalapenos and, um, I mean, and some lime zest. Uh, but that was pretty much it. Like, I just put jalapenos, less sugar, and some lime zest in a normal cheesecake recipe. But I also made the crust out of uh, just butter and crushed Ritz crackers. That sounds delicious. Then you put some uh, lightly sweetened sour cream on the top, and then I did a uh, hot honey and raspberry sauce. Very good. Pretty good. Uh, I'm not a huge fan of cheesecakes personally, but they're Travis's favorite, so. Oh, I love a good cheesecake. They're definitely like, you got to have like one slice and that's it though. Yeah. Yeah. La- not last year. Year before last, I made a tiramisu cheesecake, and the year before that, I made a bacon cheesecake. Ooh. Yeah, they were both pretty good. Okay, so those are the methods. Those are the ingredients. And now, that bread recipe I was telling you about. And I'm also going to quiz you. Oh, no. And then we'll be done with this episode, which I was worried was going to be too short. But then I talked about gluten for 45 minutes. (laughs) This feels like that episode I did about the Holy Grail where I, like, actually did my research and then I just didn't stop talking. (laughs) You guys remember that one? So... I've made this bread recipe pretty much every other week since the lockdown started. Not because I just want to keep making it, because we keep running out of it. And you need to have it on hand at all times? It is one of the best breakfasts. You make some bacon and then you fry up a couple slices of this in the pan that you made the bacon in. Oh, damn. Um, And it's kind of like like a grilled cheese all in one. Okay. You will need... Everybody taking notes? I'm. I'm going to make you like... Give me the recipe and I'm going to put it on an image. Okay, cool. <laughs> so start with 270 grams of all-purpose flour. Not bread flour, which has a higher protein content and thus makes things very chewy. And not cake flour, which is the opposite. How and much Sarah, is that in cups? Well, actually, if you can tell me, why are things measured in grams in most baking recipes? Because uh, it's why weight and not volume, correct? Yes, because things can occupy space differently. So right. a flour might have more air in it and take up more space than the same type of flour that's been compressed a little in the bag. Right. This is why I was always taught to, like, like have my measuring cup, but, like, scoop into it and not, like, scoop with the measuring cup to, like, not have so much flour. Yeah, so 
I, I don't use grams for things than tablespoons or teaspoons because my, my scale doesn't do that very well. But yeah, so I'm not going to give you teaspoons and stuff in grams. But um, I know not everyone has a scale, so it's roughly two cups of flour. Gotcha. Uh, two teaspoons of baking powder. And Sarah, can you tell me, is this a quick bread? Yes, because yes, cause you're using the chemical leavener. Yes. I learned a thing. You're doing so much better than the demon quiz. The demon quiz was bad. But in my defense, you didn't like teach me about the demons for an hour and a half and then quiz me. <laughs> um, so two eggs, three tablespoons of vegetable oil, 227 grams or one cup of milk. Which is about eight ounces fluid measurements, but either two grams or do the cup. Like, don't make this harder on yourself. Uh, one tablespoon of Dijon mustard. Ooh. One tablespoon of sugar. One teaspoon of salt. And 227 grams or two cups of sharp cheddar cheese. Damn. You can use the bag stuff if you want. I do, because I'm lazy. But yeah. it has to be a strong cheese. I was going to say, tried... you want that cheddar flavor to come out, I'm imagining. Yeah. Um, I haven't tried this with, like, a really strong cheese, but I have a feeling, like, Parmesan and Gruyere and stuff would oh, probably God. play. Yeah, I do want to try one with some Gruyere and some uh, caramelized onion. But And then about a third of a cup of diced pickled jalapenos. I don't measure them when I make this. So I just kind of... Put whatever my heart feels like it needs. <laughs> but it is about a third of a cup when it's chopped. You could use fresh jalapenos. Um, I was going to say, do you buy, like, pickled jalapenos? Do those come in, like, a jar? Yeah. Okay. Um, Not being a connoisseur of jalapenos myself. I prefer the pickled ones. They have just a little less heat and a little more tang. Um, so I like putting them on my, my white trash quesadillas, mm-hmm. which is a... Flour tortilla, a handful of pre-shredded cheese, and a couple jalapenos that you put in the microwave. Oh, boy. Oh, wow. That's some Senator Mark Warner levels of cooking. I know how to make a tuna melt. (laughs) (laughs) You're going to start by preheating your oven to 375 and putting a rack in the middle of the oven. This keeps it heated evenly when it's in the middle. Um, if yeah, you have- tell me more about that, because I've never been clear on that. Like, where, why does the placement matter? I know it has something to do with, like, how heat rises or something. Well, it's airflow, okay. basically. But, so, like, where should I put it for different things? Um, for the most part, you're going to want it in the middle. Okay. Or as close to the middle as you can get. Like, if you have to have two racks because you're doing two cookies. Uh-huh. Or, um, Obviously, yeah, then spaced out. Yeah, uh, but you're also going to want to swap them midway through so they heat evenly. I was just going to say that was my mom's trick was um, she would always have two pans ready and she would put one on the top and one on the middle. And then as like the top one, or I think it would start in the middle and then they would move them to the top. And she was always kind of like swapping them out midway through the recipe. Yeah, and she also may have been aware that like your oven heated unevenly. Like, I know it's hard to tell, but sometimes Yeah, this was like the 90s. Yeah, it'll be hotter in the back than it is in the front. In that Mm -hmm. case, you need to, like, rotate it halfway through. This is kind of where you have to, like... Know your oven. Know your oven. But it is about making sure that it's heated evenly from all sides, which is also why it's important that you have good uh, baking dishes. This is not something I have. Um, I mean, if I'm being perfectly honest, I use cookie sheets that I got from a baking or a cooking, like a restaurant supply store. Oh. Uh, They're cheap. They are easy. I don't use nonstick coated stuff because that chips off and it can be kind of weird. Like just aluminum pans. I've got some cookie sheets that are about 10 years old and looking pretty rough. Yeah. And just pop down to a restaurant supply store. They're like five bucks. But yeah, it's just important that it's like a heavy gauge metal. Uh, Glass is also pretty good. Um, Stoneware, I'm like on the fence about because it can take a while to heat up. Yeah, stoneware. My mom always used stoneware and it was like good, but like they're heavy and kind of clumsy. It was the 90s. Everyone's mom had the pampered chef stoneware cookie sheets. Oh God, we had so much pampered chef shit. 
I still like their, uh, I stole the uh, can opener from my house. When oh, I yeah. Moved. No, they had some good stuff. Uh, stoneware is good for, like, pizzas because you can put it in the oven and preheat it, mm-hmm. which causes the pizza crust to cook faster, which is what you want. Yeah. Uh, we've talked about this. Yes. Oven placement is important just to make sure that things are circulating evenly. You're going to want to line a 9 by 5 loaf pan, which is standard loaf pan size. But check if you're buying one, please check. I <laughs> had a loaf pan that I had had for a while, and I went to make um, this pull-apart cinnamon sugar biscuit king cake. Goddamn, that sounds good. I know. But I, I spent forever making it, and then I baked it, and I took it out of the oven, and, like, the inside was completely raw. And then I was like, okay, well, maybe the recipe wasn't good, which it was from Joy the Baker on Instagram, and she's the best. So, so it was not the recipe's fault. Wasn't. Because then the next weekend I tried making her uh, cheddar scallion English muffin bread. Same thing happened. And it turns out my loaf pan was two inches shorter than a standard loaf pan. So it was just too much shit crammed in a small... Right. <laughs> so it wasn't heating evenly it was baking the outside at because it was the right temperature for the right time mm-hmm. but it wasn't but it like was too getting... dense yeah okay so line line the pan with some parchment paper parchment paper is one of the best things that you can buy for baking i love parchment paper <laughs> absolutely do not skip this step trust me so in a large do you have bowl, tricks do you kind of like fold it so it comes up the edges yeah i do it so it's kind of I, I do like a narrow sheet that's the length of the pan. So uh-huh. on the long sides, there's an overhang. Okay. I don't worry about the the, the short ends at the front right. and the back being covered. Um, okay. Mostly because my pan is pretty nonstick. Right. Just on its own. So in a large bowl, you're going to mix your flour, your baking powder, the salt, the cheese, and the jalapenos. And Sarah, can you tell me why we're mixing the cheese and jalapenos in with the dry ingredients? No. So, since they're both theoretically kind of damp, giving them a coating of flour dries them out and keeps them from being heavy, so they sink to the bottom. So, it just keeps it from having, like, a sheet of cheese and jalapeno at the bottom of your bread. Right. Yeah, it kind of, like, it almost... And I would imagine, especially with a jalapeno, it gives them kind of, like, a coating. So, it, like, sucks some of that moisture out before you add it back in. And... Uh, bagged cheese does tend to have a coating of cornstarch on it already, mm-hmm. um, but I still recommend putting it in with the, okay. the dry ingredients. So then in a smaller bowl, you're going to mix the eggs, the milk, the sugar, the mustard, and the oil. Now, you're going to be tempted to not put the mustard in because it sounds weird. You got to put the mustard in. No. Are you kidding? <laughs> the mustard is the most interesting part of this recipe. The mustard in the original recipe that I kind of adapted this from, it was mustard powder, but I don't fucking have mustard powder. So I winged it, and it's really good. It adds, like, a sharpness to it. I was going to say, just that little kick. Yeah, that sounds yeah, really if, good. If you do happen to have mustard powder, like, add a tablespoon of it. I don't uh, – not a tablespoon. That's that's way too much. Oh, God. Like, That'd like be a, a very mustardy bread. Yeah. It just adds something to it. A je ne sais quoi, if you will. Then you're going to put the wet ingredients into the dry ingredients and mix them until they are just combined. And Sarah, what method did we use? That's the muffin method, right? That is correct. Yes. So once you got it all combined, put it in the pan and bake it in the middle, on the middle rack for 45 minutes or until a knife stuck in the center comes out clean. What that means is that the moisture has been absorbed mm-hmm. into where it needs to go. Things are starting to gelatinize, meaning that there's no loose stuff to, yeah. to stick to the knife. Um, so then you're going to use that parchment to lift it out of the pan as soon as you can and let that cool completely. And Sarah, why are we waiting for it to cool? Because it's got to do the thing. It's got to like gelatinize? Yes. Yeah. The gelatins uh, formed by the starches after they have been heated and received all of that water from the milk and the eggs, have to set. Yeah. Set. Yeah. I was going to say, it's almost like, not really, but it's like, it's almost still cooking after you're done cooking it. Yeah. It's 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 called carryover. Yeah. 
So it like the steam inside has to have a chance to like dissipate and finish its job. Mm-hmm. If you cut that shit open now, you're going to let all that steam out. It's going to be mushy and then it's going to be dry. Sad. I know. And there you have it. You have made bread. You've made bread with cheese. God, that sounds good. It's really, really good. That's the episode. That's everything I know about the science of baking condensed into an hour and 18 minutes. That was a really good episode. I legitimately, like, learned things and now feel more comfortable baking. I mean, I'm fine with baking. I just I don't do it because I'm lazy. <laughs> uh, so, yeah, uh, we'll post the, the recipe and pictures. Yeah. I don't know what I'm going to do for pictures. Pictures of food you've baked? I don't know. Uh, pictures of molecules. I'll throw up a picture of a, a protein chain. You should just get pictures of bread. Yeah. Um, so if you make the bread and want to send us a picture, we are on Twitter at Afternoonified, Instagram at Afternoonified. That's probably a better avenue for pictures of bread. Facebook, facebook.com slash getafternoonified, getafternoon, getafternoonified.com? Yeah. Yep. Um, where you can listen to old episodes. Uh, so that's what you can do on the website. We also have an email, uh, afternoonifiedpod at gmail.com but my voice is starting to go away so (laughs) I think that's our cue yes all right goodbye goodbye everybody we love you see you there hi shane hosey host of grim designs a podcast about game design and cheating death each episode sees me and a friend creating a new analog game from scratch using like deck of cards some dice DD dice pen and paper whatever you have lying around the house and i use those games to play the grim reaper and extend my unnaturally long life that part isn't part of the show i mean we, we couldn't get death to sign the waiver but you can check it out part of sobolo media that's grim designs hosted by me shane hosey stay safe everybody for more podcasts like the one you just listened to, go to sobelowmedia.com. This this is as above so below. <laughs>